I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. From all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell of how the good old union has come in here to dwell. In Labor Day week, with the presidential contest underway, we're hearing echoes of our history in today's contest over rights and wrongs, wealth and work, jobs and pay. Here in order are candidates Scott Walker and Bernie Sanders, then President Barack Obama in Boston this week. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? We need new, fresh leadership. The kind of leadership that knows how to get things done, like we've done here in Wisconsin. Since I've been governor, we took on the unions and we won. Freedom is never given to us. We have to struggle for it. Workers standing up and fighting for their rights and joining unions, that's the way change takes place. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If I were looking for a good job that lets me build some security for my family, I'd join a union. If I wanted somebody who had my back, I'd join a union. Those are a few of the ways we phrase our fight these days over shares in the fruit of American life. By historical standards, the talk is pretty polite. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. What few Americans today realize is that during what I call the long 19th century, the period lasting from shortly after the Civil War through the Great Depression and the New Deal, class conflict, what today we sometimes call class warfare, was actually at the core of American life. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Our principal guest this hour, Steve Fraser, is a labor historian who believes we've been sleeping through the real battle for power and privilege, and most of all, money, for the last 40 years. He's written a comparative history of the first and second gilded ages in America. He calls this one the age of acquiescence because we've surrendered, he says, to the power of capital. He's shaming us citizen readers for being conned out of caring. It wasn't this way, he says, when our economic colossus was growing up in the first Gilded Age. For example, there were a series of mass strikes, beginning with the great insurrection of 1877, which began as a nationwide railroad strike and then embraced all kinds of working people in opposition to the great railroad, trunk line railroads, Mm. uh, and to the state and federal militias that were brought to bear on behalf of these corporations to break the strike. There's the Haymarket riot and bombing of 1886 and the nationwide eight-hour day movement, Mm. which leads to strikes all over America by all kinds of working people. There's the Pullman strike of 1894, which was broken by Grover Cleveland when he sent out federal troops to move the trains past the pickets. There's the Carnegie Steel strike of 1892. And these are only the highlights of what was really a chronic phenomenon in America of striking against the rule of the plutocracy. I think few people today could imagine this, but it was common in late 19th century America for worker militias to march through the streets of our major metropolitan centers armed 
so that they could alert their enemies, that is to say, the captains of industry, so to speak, that if they were attacked, they were prepared to fight back. I mean, that's almost unimaginable to us today. Some of our most famous presidents invade regularly against the rule of great wealth. During the Civil War, for example, Abraham Lincoln decries Wall Street speculators who are actually speculating against the Union Army that is selling short government bonds in the anticipation of Confederate victory. And he he said, this is a quote, that they should be shot. When Teddy Roosevelt becomes president around the turn of the 20th century, he talks about malefactors of great wealth. And he says, you know, I don't begrudge anybody the amassing of great wealth, but I don't admire those people. I don't think they're the natural born leaders of our society, something we seem to think is true today. He said, I more admire scientists, adventurers, inventors, intellectuals, artists. These are people, he said, that I really have admiration for. We propose to extend governmental power in order to secure the liberty of the wage workers, of the men and women who toil in industry, to save the liberty of the oppressed from the oppressor. Uh, When Woodrow Wilson ran for president in 1912, his whole campaign was organized around an assault on what was then called the Money Trust. The whole business of politics is to bring classes together upon a platform of accommodation and common interest. That is to say, the constellation of white shoe, Wall Street investment banking houses, law firms, insurance companies, estate trusts, and so on, which Wilson said not only were controlling the major capital resources of the economy, but were subverting democracy, turning the Senate into what was commonly known in those days as the Millionaire's Club, something we could call it today, but don't, uh, which is itself telling. And we know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mobs. And of course, Franklin Roosevelt, during the Great Depression, is famous for his audacity in condemning the plutocracy. He talks, of course, when he first becomes president, of driving the money changers out of the temples of our civilization. When he was running for re-election in 1936, he says, I know that the, the corporate elite, the rich elite of America, hate me. And this is a quote, he said, and I welcome their hatred. It's almost unimaginable that any president since then would would talk that kind of language, a language which was part of the lingua franca of America, but is no longer that, has been purged from our vocabulary. What's so fascinating in the big context was that this brawling, rancorous culture was what produced, what built up the incredible industrial might of this country and the farm productivity and everything, you know, success by every other measure. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think one of the other striking differences between the two Gilded Ages is that the first one, despite all the poverty, despite the sense that the nation was being divided in two into the haves and have-nots, despite all the exploitation, it was a country that was actually becoming more and more robust economically and in which there was a general, if slow, rise in the standard of living. And it was the upbuilding of American industrial might. The second Gilded Age is characterized by exactly the opposite process— 
That is to say, we are a developed country undergoing the process of underdevelopment. That is to say, standards of living for Americans, for large numbers of working, ordinary Americans, have either stagnated or actually declined over the last 30 or 40 years. It now takes a two-wage earner family to earn what one wage earner earned 50 years ago. And instead of being an industrial colossus, what we've become is a financial colossus, but we've done that by cannibalizing the industrial wherewithal of the country. The reason the banks became so enormously powerful, the whole financial, what they call the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, became so enormously powerful economically and politically over the last 30 or 40 years is because they essentially stripped bare the industrial wherewithal of the country. We, we call it deindustrialization. And they did that either by selling off the most profitable assets that they bought in mergers and acquisitions in order to support the enormous financial debt it took to buy those kinds of companies. They outsourced millions of jobs so that now much of American industry is no longer American but is produced by cheap labor all across the rest of the globe and especially the global south. So we are a country that has deindustrialized and gone through a process of underdevelopment rather than what the first Gilded Age, despite all the things that can be said against it, achieved during that period of time. Spell that out, the difference between industrial capitalism and finance capitalism, a period of accumulation and a period of giving it away. You write pretty starkly, a country in development and a country in decay. What happens is that around the 1970s, American industry found itself unable to compete on the world market with some of the new rising industrial powers of that era, the, especially Germany and Japan, who had, had risen out of the ruins of World War II to reindustrialize their countries. And instead of trying to adopt a set of industrial policies that might have made America competitive again and save the jobs of millions of people, instead, the financial centers of the country, Wall Street in particular, decided that they could make money more easily by buying and selling, basically for purposes of financial speculation, some of the leading corporations and mid-sized corporations under the guise that they would make them competitive. How are you going to do that? The way it was done is you sold off, closed down, you have massive layoffs closing down of factories or shipping them abroad. The social consequences of this are enormous because the heartland became a ghost town. All kinds of mid-sized and even, well, Detroit, of course, is the everybody's yeah. favorite clinical example of the horrors of what deindustrialization meant. What was once one of the most prosperous, third largest cities in the country with a, a working class that had decent levels of wages, decent benefits, vacations, health care, pensions, all of that was stripped bare so that it became the hollowed out shell that we now know it to be and that it's been for some time. But that process was repeated in dozens of cities all across the heartland, the East Coast, places like Camden, New Jersey. We think of Camden, New Jersey today as a sinkhole of decay, but it didn't used to be. It was the center of RCA and Sunship and Campbell Soup, and all of these companies thrived there. But the social consequences were immense because not only were these towns destroyed, the social wherewithal to resist this was destroyed along with it. Mainly the labor movement declined precipitously. It became more and more defensive. It entered into a phase of what came to be called concessionary bargaining. That is, no longer were you asking for a raise, but you were simply trying to control the rate at which your wages would be cut. This is not just a material problem. It doesn't cause people merely material suffering. That's bad enough. 
it also destroyed the musculature with which the working class was able to resist that. So that in 1955, roughly, more than a third, well more than a third of the working force of America was unionized. Today, less than 6% of the working force is unionized. And that's, that's not a, just a, a mere gross number. It also means that when you have organized 35 or 40% of the labor force, your power extends way beyond that 35 or 40% because all those non-union places, they are going to match what the union corporations are giving in wages and benefits and so on because that's the way of keeping the union out of their shop. When you're 6%, you don't have that leverage. You don't exercise that leverage over the rest of the economy. Coming up with historian Steve Fraser, a different take on the New Deal, marking a consolidation of capitalism and a decline of militancy. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s secured the foundations of capital, retirement for elders, and the rights of a vast swath of organized workers, leaving open the question, what was left to fight for before labor's demands would wilt into accommodation? These were days when history changed its course. The sit-down strikes began on December 30th. They began with the attempt of GM to move the dyes at Fisher No. 1 to Grand Rapids and elsewhere. On January the 4th, the union submitted a complete list of grievances. What happens in the 1930s, in the age of Walter Ruther, the UAW, the CIO, the sit-down strikes that not only uh, happened in the auto industry, but in the rubber industry and in almost every basic industry, even in department stores in New York City and on ships crossing the Atlantic and on the waterfront... These strikes were about two things. They were, first of all, about dignity, about rights, about democracy in the workplace, that black box where the employer is supposed to be the absolute, the autocrat. Mm. His power, his prerogatives are not to be challenged. Those strikes were about challenging that power and saying that working people, the invisibles, were insisting that they be treated like human beings, that they be accorded rights and so on. And the New Deal, of course, thanks to those strikes, is able to pass what we now call the Wagner Act or the National Labor Relations Act, establishing some modicum of industrial democracy. By this act, employers are bound to bargain collectively with an organized majority of their workers. The Wagner Act is very interesting in this regard. The Wagner Act is passed not only to give people rights, and Roosevelt was very conscious about this, to help the economy recover. Because he said, unless you provide people the wherewithal to bargain successfully with their employers, they're never going to have the purchasing power needed to absorb the output of mass industry. So if you want to get out of the Depression, you've got to have to pay people because otherwise they can't buy this stuff. It's not only a question of rights and dignity, it's a question of economic recovery. For me, that's one of the great illuminations of your book, Steve, that the New Deal was not just about a left victory for working folk or the WPA or so many different things. It was indeed, as Roosevelt said, about saving capitalism and consolidating capitalism. Yes, that's right. Roosevelt and the circles around him were, you know, very conscious that what they were trying to do was to save a system which seemed at that time to have entered its terminal crisis. And this is a widely shared 
apprehension by many, many people. The capitalism has reached its final. I mean, this was a total breakdown crisis. We're talking about 25% unemployment, a steel industry operating at 10% of capacity. We're talking about mass foreclosures in the countryside. We're talking about mass evictions in the cities. The system had completely broken down. And Roosevelt saw that and the people around him did. But a lot of his compatriots, you know, he was to the manor born. He was a Hudson River patroon. His family went all the way back to the beginning of the country. He was, in the eyes of a lot of his fellow plutocrats, a traitor to his class. And they treated him venomously. They vilified him in every way. They called him a communist, called him a Jew. They called him a cripple. They called him a nigger lover. They were so enraged by the fact that and he, he, would, he said to them in so many words, don't you get it? I'm trying to save this, the system mm. for you. But for a while, they didn't get it. <laughs> but will attempt to give to the industrial workers of the country a more fair wage return to prevent cutthroat competition, to prevent unduly long hours for labor, and at the same time to encourage each industry to prevent overproduction. What a lot of workers didn't get either was that their resistance and a lot of utopian visions were fading. I asked Steve Fraser when the dream of a worker democracy began to die or when the age of acquiescence was born. I think it begins with something very, very intangible. You might expect me to say it begins with some oh, famous crushing of a strike or something, and that does happen. But it begins with something far less tangible in the 1950s. In the 1950s, as we all know, the country went through a kind of hysteria about the Cold War. We call it McCarthyism. Here, for example, a broadcast by Senator McCarthy himself in 1950. Practically every issue which we face today, from high taxes to the shameful mess in Korea, is inextricably interwoven with the communist issue. And millions of people in my radio and television audience tonight, we'll recall that even in grade school, your hearts beat a bit faster, and you felt a great surge of pride when you heard in song that this was the land of the free and the home of the brave. But let me ask you, how free are we? And McCarthyism, even before McCarthy arrived on the scene, was a real cultural poison because what it did was it introduced a kind of cultural politics of fear so that a lot of ideas and a lot of language that had been part of the American vocabulary were purged. We became afraid to use them because all of them, in McCarthy's view and in the, in the view of McCarthyites, were simply cosmetic covers for, for the red menace so that the struggle for civil rights was communist. The struggle for universal health care was communist. The struggle for public housing was communist. And to talk about capitalism in any hostile way was, of course, the talk of a Bolshevik. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. So the language, the ideas, the imagination, which used to inform our ancestors, was verboten. There's a famous philosopher who once said that language is the house of being. 
And when you purge a nation or a culture of its language, you leave it homeless. That is to say, it can no longer imagine what it used to be able to imagine. It self-censors so that the acquiescence begins with that kind of intangible self-censorship. I mean, there was plenty tangible. People lost their jobs. People were fired. People were blacklisted, etc. The lessons were palpable and for everybody to see. But what was being aimed at was the head what you could think and what you could no longer think. The deficit has lived with us ever since. You could certainly never talk about class warfare, class struggle. These became unsayable. You couldn't say them because if you said them, it meant you were an agent of the worldwide communist conspiracy. You know, we talk about ethnic cleansing. I would call this linguistic cleansing. Mm. So you couldn't use words like plutocracy, like moneycrats. Moneycrat was a word Thomas Jefferson used all the time Mm. to describe sympathizers who wanted to undo the revolution's accomplishments. Moneycrats. You couldn't talk about the monster bank. You know who said that? Andrew Jackson. He's a president. You couldn't talk that language anymore. You couldn't talk about robber barons. You couldn't talk about class struggle. You couldn't talk about socialism. You couldn't talk about syndicalism. You couldn't talk about anarchism. All of these kinds of metaphors, images became proscribed. For instance, the first defanging of the labor movement as a militant organization happens during that Cold War era when the CIO is compelled by this new politics of fear to purge some of its most radical and also most militant and powerful unions. The United Electrical Workers, for example, are driven out of the CIO. Communist unions. I, I remember my parents talking about that. Yeah, there are 11 such unions, and these are major industrial unions that are driven out under the shadow of this kind of anti-communism. we got to mention the Hollywood 10, the purging of popular culture, too. That's right. This purge happens across the board. It, it happens everywhere from the unions to the post office to Hollywood to Broadway. All of the avenues of mass culture, popular culture, some of our most famous actors, writers, directors, either can't find work or they become informers. They engage in their own moral compromise with their integrity. The censorship of the movies becomes more and more intense about what you're allowed to talk about. We're fed a steady diet of uh, anti-communist filmmaking and so on. It's pervasive. The Hollywood blacklist smeared even the screenwriter of High Noon, a classic Gary Cooper western, And for years, it banned the men who had written the screenplay and also the music of Frank Sinatra's patriotic hit of 1942, The House I Live In. It's a sturdy song about race and religious tolerance, and on YouTube, it survives the old taunts of far-leftism. Sinatra kept singing it, even at state occasions for his friends Nancy and Ronald Reagan. The children in the playground the faces that I see all races and religions that's America to me President Reagan who had once led the Actors Union in Hollywood, had a speaking part in the humbling of labor in 1981 when he called a federal air traffic controller strike strictly illegal and issued his own tough ultimatum. Let me make one thing plain. 
I respect the right of workers in the private sector to strike, but we cannot compare labor management relations in the private sector with government. Government cannot close down the assembly line. It has to provide without interruption the protective services which are government's reason for being. It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty this morning they are in violation of the law and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. He busts their strike. He fires them all. And that is not just a, a kind of very decisive act on the part of the president. It's a signal to the whole business community that something has changed in the world, that now the labor movement is fair game. The whole notion of replacing striking workers with what we now call permanent workers, what used to be called scabs, has become an accepted part of business practice in America. So the busting of the air traffic controller strike opened up a wide terrain of assaults on the labor movement. It's after that that all this concessionary bargaining begins. It's after that that the whole two-tier system where the older workers make whatever they were originally making, but the new workers make a pittance or a half of what they were making. All of that follows on from Reagan's assault on the uh, Patco strike. Steve Frazier, you write about the lost soul of American politics, but in fact, it begins well before Reagan. You write about Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was a right-to-work state guy, completely outside the civil rights movement in Georgia, much less the anti-Vietnam or Vietnam politics. He had critical support from David Rockefeller and Time magazine. And now you declare him in the book the first neoliberal president. I'm fascinated by that. Yes, Carter is a vital part of the story because what he shows is that this new neoliberal persuasion, this new love affair with the market, this new sense that the regulatory state had to be dismantled is always been, or not always, but was very early on a bipartisan persuasion. Uh, After all, Bill Clinton is the head of the Democratic Leadership Council before he becomes president and while he's governor of Arkansas. And it's the Democratic Leadership Council which says, look, we've got to be Republican light if we're going to win the presidency again. Carter engages in very systematic deregulation of various key industries during his administration. We deregulated financial institutions. We decontrolled oil and natural gas prices. And we negotiated lower trade barriers throughout the world for our exports. Where we needed continued regulation, we required agencies to analyze carefully the costs of their new proposals. What's important about Carter and that time, the 70s, is that it's a telltale sign that the labor movement is losing its influence and weight inside the Democratic Party. Carter would never have made it past a labor gatekeeper 10 years earlier. You couldn't have done it. They still wielded too much power and influence. But by the 70s, the tide is shifting and the Democratic Party, although it still has its share of labor liberals like Hubert Humphrey, for example, who are important people, or Ted Kennedy for that matter, but is it, the center of gravity within the Democratic Party is shifting in the direction of neoliberalism. The meat and potatoes that people like Carter and especially the Clintons after him begin to stress is this kind of neoliberal fascination with the marketplace being the ultimate arbiter of, of what goes on in the country. Meantime, Steve, the labor unions are 
shrinking, then withering, then dying, and they're now almost museum pieces. Was that inevitable? Around the same time in that post-war, Cold War era, the labor movement made a very difficult choice. What was the choice? The choice was, look, the New Deal is receding. We seem to be losing our power to compel the Democratic Party to extend its reforms into the fields of, say, universal health insurance or wide-scale, low-cost public housing, things like that. So what are we going to do? The labor movement, which had always fought for everybody, not just for its members, right, but for the whole working class, says to itself, we can't do that anymore. We're going to fight for our own members. We're not going to fight for the welfare state generally. We're going to fight for the welfare state in our industry. And they won that battle. They made huge gains in the auto industry, in the steel industry, in the electrical industry, and so on. Great contracts, long-term contracts, cost of living escalators, wage increases, vacations, all of that. But this is like private welfare states. And what that private welfare state meant in the long term was that they were cutting themselves off from the vast number of unorganized workers. That is to say, the agricultural workers of the South, black workers who were in the CIO but in large numbers were not, domestic workers, retail and service sectors workers. You know, back in the day, industry was the big employer. But as we all know today, it was retail and service that would grow tremendously. But those workers were never organized. By deciding that they had to opt for this kind of hunker down, private welfare state, do good by our members, but give up that much more challenging crusade for the whole working class, they cut themselves off. That sounds like Steve Fraser's answer to the common question, how and why capital S socialism, an idea and a political party, got pushed to the far margins in America because the unions fixed on their partnerships with big business and lost interest in representing all workers or workers as such. The question for me that's actually just as interesting and I think has always been neglected about American history is why... You know, we always think America is a business civilization. It's dedicated to the market and to business and for the individual getting ahead. And, you know, Calvin Coolidge once famously said the business of America is business. And he had a point. Uh, he, was, <laughs> he was tapping into something about this kind of indigenous American belief. But what runs counter to that, in my view, you have to ask a different question. Why was there such a long, long period of anti-capitalism in America, which produced enormous changes, which actually, in the end, culminates in the great reforms of the New Deal era? You know, the unemployment insurance and the Wagner Act and social welfare and and government regulation. Why was there that? And I, I argue in my book that people back then because they knew other ways of life other than industrial and finance capitalism. They had come from handicraft backgrounds or were independent farmers or were skilled artisans or were peasants from southern and eastern Europe. They knew there were other ways of living. Not that they glorified those ways, but they knew that there were alternatives to the dog-eat-dog world of capitalism, which offended them and also was driving them out of social existence. They were still hunting and fishing and had their their own garden plots or their own farms or their own workshops or small mm. businesses. And so they could imagine something other than capitalism. And I think in the mid-20th century, that all recedes into a kind of almost unremembered past. There are no more roots that take us back there. And it becomes harder for us to imagine this alternative. 
Coming up, new rules on a new playing field today and how a fresh crop of taxi drivers and knowledge workers, for example, are trying to cope. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. The realities of work and workers keep unfolding in our political gab and all manner of small negotiations. What everybody knows and halfway accepts is that young giant employers on the landscape like Walmart and Amazon are not organized by unions and aren't about to be. Meantime, on the holy battleground of the old unionism, Harlan County, Kentucky, the last union coal mine shut down last New Year's Eve. So what's a worker to do, especially when she or he is urged to think of insecurity as another name for freedom, or that a lonely clerk in a temp job can now be described as a self-empowered free agent? Here is the way the conversations go and the advertising buzzwords fly in the Boston battle between the Uber taxis you can summon on your iPhone and the licensed cab companies and their drivers. I want to spend more time with my family and those who depend on me. I want to earn a little extra income now that I'm retired. I want to work part-time while I put myself through school. I want the freedom to follow my passion and still earn a good living. With Uber, it's all possible. This is Donna Bleichar. I'm the staff representative for the Boston Taxi Drivers Union. We represent uh, about 1,400 cab drivers. Well, we're out here to demonstrate and have a presence and to express our frustrations and our problems and the fact that we're suffering. And on this Labor Day, we don't have a lot to cheer about. You know, we've lost uh, 50% of our income. Many of the small medallion owners now are in jeopardy of going bankrupt. Some have lost their home. There's this fellow here that had to sell his home in order to keep his medallion so that he could continue to work. So this is all a result of state and local government turning their back on an industry that's regulated and on people who have followed the rules and invested in a business that required certain regulations. We've said enough is enough and either regulate Uber or deregulate the taxi industry. And I don't think anyone in any municipality wants to see that, but you know, you cannot continue to allow our personal vehicles on the street to act as taxis without any rules or regulations or proper insurance, and at such low fares that it's intentionally trying to put the taxi industry out of business. And that's unacceptable to Something has to give, and we're counting on those we elect to do their job. My name is Michael Gervais, here with our brothers, uh, we're from Cambridge. Basically what this is about is we're looking at antitrust issues with Uber and we're looking at the cab industry where the cab industry is regulated, Uber's not. This isn't something new that's been going on. They started with the small farmers and went on to small fishermen, small grocers, everyone. There's a responsibility by government to take care of the small businessmen. There's a responsibility by uh, government to take care of this liability that's going on. We're basically people that have families that take care of something 24-7. 
Uber doesn't take care of people with disabilities. Uber doesn't take care of the old people. Uber doesn't take care of the elderly and, and the handicapped and the drunks at night and the people that are drunk at night or that don't have a smartphone. The idea is if there's a transformation, no one's asking to uh, kick Uber out permanently and take care of anything. We welcome all forms of transportation. We welcome everything, but it has to be regulated, it has to be right, and any transformation has to be done responsibly. In journalism and all across the morphing media biz, young writers are working out their own common demands in their own tone of voice. Here is Hamilton Nolan leading a drive to unionize contributors to the Gawker site online. The bigger picture in this industry is that there was a period of creative destruction where the internet was putting a lot of old media outlets out of business. You know, a lot of newspapers went through a lot of layoffs, a lot of magazines. A lot of those jobs are now in digital media outlets, BuzzFeed, Vice, Gawker, Huffington Post. You know, that's where a lot of the new media jobs are now. And the old media places that went out of business were widely unionized. You know, the newspaper industry is a widely unionized industry. So a lot of the jobs that were lost ended up being union jobs. A lot of the new media jobs that are here now, nobody's really gone to the trouble of unionizing that industry yet. So it's sort of a process of the industry growing up, in a sense. Now, you know, when you see Vice getting a $2.5 billion valuation, when you see BuzzFeed getting a multi-billion dollar valuation, you know, it's clear that these are real businesses, this is a real industry, and, and moreover, this is actually the future of journalism and the media as a whole. So there's real money being made in this industry, and the workers deserve a part of that real money, and the way that workers get a fair share in America is to unionize. One of the things I'm looking forward to as this campaign spreads through a lot of other places in our industry is these owners like Ariana Huffington. She's a big liberal figure in America. She's a liberal pundit. And now it's time for her to put her money where her mouth is and support the right of her workers to unionize. The whole gig economy is a great way for a business owner not to have to pay benefits. It's an incredibly good situation if you are the owner of a business to say, everybody I have as a freelancer, I have no responsibilities. I mean, that's the Uber business model, right? Now all those companies that are organizing like that are running into the reality of this is not a way to provide for people and we're going to have to have some sort of regulation. If somebody wants to be a freelancer for life, they're completely free to do that, and no union is going to stop you. But what unions will do is to help to ensure that people can actually have a real career in this industry and not constantly be scrambling from gig to gig. Our historian Steve Fraser fits all those workers we just heard into what he calls the precariat. It feels to him like the end stage of 30 or 40 years of an economy and a culture of acquiescence to the power of money. But that doesn't make it the end of everything. The economy that we have grown up under over the last 30 or 40 years is an economy that apprises its flexibility. Some people call it flexible capitalism. What that means is that the employer has really no enduring obligation to his employee. He relies on temp workers, on part-time workers, on people who are freelance workers, because this is a way of minimizing his costs. Often, if they're part-time, he doesn't have to obey any of the labor laws. He doesn't have to pay into Social Security. Also, employers in vast numbers 
employing these kinds of casual workers do not obey minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, and so on. What this means is it creates this vast sea of kind of precarious, informal workers, right? That looks like it's a bad situation. These people cannot rely on law to protect them. They cannot rely on a kind of long-term stable employment relationship. So that all conduces to acquiescence. But what also conduces to acquiescence is to describe that same very precarious situation as a new form of freedom. So it develops around this new precarious form of work a kind of ideological justification that makes people feel like, you know, wow, I'm just out there on the frontiers of self-invention. I don't need all those, you know, because they were constraining. After all, if you're a member of a union, you have to pay dues to the union. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. Don't we have to say, Steve, that there are a lot of things we like about that era? We work for ourselves. Yes, it's very alluring. It seems to hold out the prospect of being very creative, self-motivating, but actually for the great bulk of precarious workers, and I'm not just talking about, say, part-time Walmart workers or other kinds or, or fast food workers. I'm talking about all kinds of techno-professionals, designers, software engineers, all of whom are out there presumably being creative and inventive and so on, they're actually just struggling to get by. They're trying to find that 25th and 26th hour in the day when they can work one more job to piece together the most modest form of a livelihood. And so there's a kind of faux freedom, a kind of faux creativity while, in fact, they're under enormous stress. The stress in the workplace today is at unprecedented levels. There are dozens of reports about this because people are always, always hustling. The biggest employers in the country today, outside of a place like Walmart, are the temp agencies. Try living, maintaining a livelihood as a temporary worker and see how much creativity and freedom you feel like you have. Look, the aspiration, the desire to be creative, to use your own spiritual, mental resources to create a life is admirable. Who wouldn't want to do that? And that's very alluring, and it should be alluring. Who among us wouldn't like that? What I'm arguing is that for, and for some people that is probably exactly true, but for the great bulk of this precarious labor force, it's mystification. That's not the actual life they're living. Quite to the contrary, they're living a life because they lack all those protections and security and social solidarity, a life that robs them of the ability to be creative and free. You know, you know, the CIO and the labor movement always conceived of itself as a freedom movement. Now, isn't that odd? After all, what does a labor movement do? It demands that you show a connectedness to other people, right? That's its basis for being. We call it solidarity. Whatever you call it, it says that my freedom, my freedom is dependent on the freedom of a lot of other people acting in concert. But that is a very different conception of freedom than the profound individualism, even anti-social, anti-solidarity freedom that has now become a commonplace in America. The people who founded the CIO, and I'm talking about Walter Ruther, I'm talking about the average guy in the assembly line. This was an inspirational experience because after living in fear, 
just barely getting by, afraid to challenge the boss, fearful of the foreman. He found by joining together with his fellows that he was empowered. You know, we talk a lot today. Our jargon is full of words like self-empowerment. The real empowerment that happened for that guy on that assembly line in Flint, Michigan during the sit-down strike of 1937 came because he joined with his fellows and felt powerful in himself for that reason. He felt himself to be a human being. This is something that our ancestors intuitively understood. They knew that in a certain way, free market capitalism, which has become a religion for us today, back then they said, wait a second, that free market, that every man, you know, tooth and claw, Darwinian survival of the fittest, that's not a civilization, that's an anti-civilization that rends apart the social ties that bind people together. Instead, we've bought into today, in our age of acquiescence, the kind of opposite persuasion. Bring it up through the Bush era, and now Barack Obama. And we've got to talk about Bernie Sanders whipping Scott Walker so far. Bring us to the present moment, and where in the world are we going? Well, I think the question is, is the age of acquiescence ending? Clearly, it's not over, but is it ending? And I think that's, of course, a very difficult question to answer, and I'm not a prophet, so I I don't know, but I think it may be. And there are numerous signs. You can easily misread these kinds and misinterpret what they mean, but Bernie Sanders is a very dramatic example of something that's blowing in the wind, to coin a phrase, that may be changing in the country. I don't know. But look, it's remarkable that a man who's an avowed socialist, I mean, this is almost unthinkable two minutes ago, I mean, much less, you know... uh, could be doing as well as he's doing, attracting the kinds of crowds, talking openly about trying to rein in the power of the 1%, making serious proposals about redirecting power over the economy so that it is more democratically exercised by ordinary people. I mean, these are striking things he's saying. I think Bernie Sanders is the culmination of something that's been going on for a while. The most obvious landmark is Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street vanished in a nanosecond, but it nonetheless had an enormous impact. That is, it vanished as an organized movement. People use the phrase, it changed the conversation in the country. And I think that is true, and I think it will be to its everlasting credit. And it wasn't merely that Occupy Wall Street talked about inequality, it's that it talked about capitalism. That's a no-no. You do not, you can sometimes talk about inequality, but you're really, in our modern day America, never supposed to talk about capitalism as a problem. And Occupy Wall Street said, yeah, it's a problem. There's the sense that people have that the American dream has turned into a nightmare. And so you begin to get these movements, even before Bernie Sanders was running for president, to raise the minimum wage, to establish living wages. You have all these cities and states passing ordinances and laws. And that's not because suddenly the legislature's got religion. It's because people out in the street streets were demanding that something be done. They were appalled by this. Do you know 30 to 40 million people work full-time and make less than the poverty income established by the federal government? That's a scandal. And I think more and more people recognize that. And so all of that may be feeding Bernie Sanders. Meantime, remember that Scott Walker, running in the teeth of the unions with a strip collective bargaining rights entirely platform, He wins re-election in the La Follette's progressive state of Wisconsin. 
Yeah, I think the victories that Scott Walker has achieved over the last several years are remarkable and alarming and are testament to how weak the labor movement and the culture of labor solidarity has become. It would have been unthinkable in this country for the 50 years following World War II for there to be right-to-work laws passed in the industrial heartland where unions were at their strongest. You now have them not only in Scott Walker's Wisconsin, you even have them in Walter Ruther's home, Michigan, and you have them in places like Indiana and Ohio. This was unthinkable, and one cannot be too overly Panglossian about the prospects of change. But where do we go today? And are unions the way back? I do think the future rests with a labor movement, but one that will look different than the one that our ancestors so heroically put together in the 1930s and thereafter. It has to develop new forms of organization, new ways of taking account of the fragmentation of the workforce. Mm. But I don't think those developments are themselves sufficient to kill the labor movement. I think it's, you know, in 1932... At the depths of the Great Depression, there was barely any unions in America. What unions there had been had died as a consequence of the Depression. They were on life support, right? And what did survive were the old craft unions, not industrial unions. Three years later, by 1935, millions of workers were on the move, mobilizing and forming very new creative forms of organization. So as grim And as hopeless as the situation seemed in 1932, the opposite was the case just a few years later. I don't mean that that's therefore going to happen tomorrow here, now, but I make the point to say that you can't judge what may happen tomorrow simply by looking at what the situation is today. I think what we need to recover today is the passion and the imagination of our ancestors so that someone like Mary Lease, who was a, a very fiery populist leader from Kansas in the late 19th century urged her legions of followers to raise less corn and more hell. And I think that's where we're at today. We're not entering into a business new business contract. We're talking about uh, regaining a sense of human solidarity and, and individual dignity. And to do that, you need passion and imagination of the kind that Mary Lease was calling on her followers to find. Thank you, Steve Fraser, for provocative Think Again history in the age of acquiescence from Little Brown. Thanks also to Hamilton Nolan at Gawker, and to Donna Blythe Shaw and Michael Gervais on the taxi ramparts. You can hear more from our young unionizers at radioopensource.org. Thanks also to Elizabeth Kulas for her help in recording Steve Fraser. This is the first episode in a series about work in America Today, produced in collaboration with The Nation magazine. Next week, hopes and hardships in the 2015 workforce with Barbara Ehrenreich. Our own super-solid, self-actualizing producers are Max Larkin, Connor Gillies, Pat Tomeno, and Zach Goldhammer. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our union boss. On the frontier of self-invention, I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source.